0: Good morning, we're going to be in the book of Numbers this morning, chapter 20, read eight verses. Uh, For many of you this story will be familiar as we're continuing to work our way through the story of the Exodus, verse 6 of Numbers 20 says, Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff, which was probably, I don't know if you remember in the story of the Exodus, uh, there was a point of contention about who was going to lead them and so each tribe was to get a staff and this was Aaron's, probably Aaron's staff that had budded. That's probably the staff that we're talking about. Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. "'You and Aaron your brother tell the rock before their eyes "'to yield its water. "'So you shall bring water out of the rock for them "'and give drink to the congregation and their cattle.' "'And Moses took the staff from before the Lord "'as he commanded him. "'Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together "'before the rock, and he said to them, "'Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you "'out of this rock?' "'And Moses lifted up his hand "'and struck the rock with his staff twice, "'and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank,' and their livestock. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in Me, to uphold Me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarrel with the Lord, and through them He showed Himself holy. You may be seated. May God bless the reading of His Word. The sermon series is called Exodus. We're working our way through, uh, in hitting the high points, the story of the exodus of the nation of Israel uh, from the land of Egypt. As we've said, and just by way of reminder, uh, 400, between 4 to 500 years earlier, the nation of Israel had gone into Egypt, uh, not as a nation, but as a family of uh, maybe 70 or so people, and Four or 500 years later they come out um, a nation of two plus million. uh, Because God had expanded them and blessed them and He was now calling them back to the land that He had originally promised to Abraham. These were Abraham's (laughs) descendants. Uh, But one of the things we've talked about as we've worked our way through this series is there's really a subplot to the Exodus which is a subplot that echoes into your life and echoes into my life. And that is, That often God doesn't just call us away from something, God calls us towards something. He doesn't just release us from things, He calls us to things. And I think it's a really important point for you and I uh, to remember in a nation where we have incredible blessing, which I'm thankful for, in a nation where we have incredible discretion, which I'm thankful for, we really get the chance to write our own stories And yet I think it's instructive and important for you and I to remember that God didn't just release them from slavery in the land of Egypt, although He did do that. He didn't just release them from slavery in the land of Egypt. He set them free, please hear this, not just to pursue their own desires or their own wishes. He actually set them free so that they can return to the land that He had promised them and so that they could serve Him and walk with Him. We're set free To serve God. We're not not set free to just do what we want or just pursue what feels best. We're moving away from something and we're moving towards something They weren't just released from slavery in Egypt, they were being called back towards God's purpose. Today is part 12 of the series. We've got a couple of weeks left after today. Uh, And as we say, leaving this, going to that, right? You see in your sermon notes, hopefully you got a copy of the sermon notes, um, the title at the top is, Leaving Frustration... Through purpose, We leave frustration through purpose. If we want to leave being frustrated in the moment, it's important that we look forward to what's the purpose that God has called us to. That can often recenter us around what's best and what's going to point us in the right direction. Leaving frustration through purpose. Now, we uh, mentioned this theme last week, and so the theme continues this week. Last week and this week were the first two weeks in our sermon series where we've talked about the leaving this towards that, right, leaving this to move towards that, uh, actually did not come true in the story. Uh, last week it was advice that we wish the uh, older generation of the nation of Israel had listened to. Today it's advice that we wish that Moses himself had listened to, but he didn't. And so what, where, where did he miss the exit, right? Where did he miss the turnoff? Where did the wheels come off for Him? Because definitely the wheels came off. Remembering God's purpose for us can actually help us relieve the temptation to be frustrated. Now, it doesn't always happen that way. But generally speaking, we, 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 temptation ha- or the temptation to be frustrated happens when we're, when we're kind of down in the weeds... And so one of the things we can do is zoom out and see the bigger picture and look forward, look forward. And what we're seeing also, we talked about this last week, throughout this story is this growing theme of the nation of Israel and really their rebellion. They're just flat out rebellion, which sounds really discouraging to you and I. Maybe, uh, if you think about it the way I think about it, when you see all that God had brought them through and all that God had, had delivered them from... The fact that they could still be rebellious and just not trust him is discouraging right and it's frustrating how could they have been delivered the way that they had been delivered and they didn't trust him this this rebellion and this stubbornness remember and i i think this is a fascinating theme in the story of the exodus and so if you were here in the first couple three weeks of this series, or if you're just familiar with the story, remember the first part of the story, we're actually dealing with them still being in Egypt, and we're watching Pharaoh be rebellious and be stubborn. We're watching Pharaoh harden his heart and harden his neck. It reminds me of the verse in Proverbs that says, He who stiffens his neck after much reproof will be broken suddenly beyond remedy. How scary is that, right? That's a bonus. That's not even in your notes, because I wasn't planning on doing that. What, what a fascinating idea that if we continue to stiffen and stubborn ourselves, and I've got a lot of stubborn in me. Anybody else like that in the room? We are st- we're kind of stubborn people with stubborn hearts. And so this is what we see in the first part of the story, listen, is stubbornness and rebellion by Pharaoh. But as they make their way through the Red Sea, God deals with Pharaoh, and now it's kind of God and the nation of Israel out in the wilderness, making their way towards the Promised Land. what you find is that the biggest story of the theme of rebellion and stubbornness actually didn't leave the story. Their biggest enemy was not Pharaoh's stubbornness and rebellion. It was their own. And so we now see the fruit of that becoming ripe, uh, you got to pay the piper, right? And at some point the piper shows up for his paycheck. And last week we saw that in the older generation of the nation of Israel, and this week we see it in Moses' life. Uh, it's kind of discouraging to me, I think. Uh, and i tell you why it's discouraging. Obviously, that's a sad way for this story to end for Moses. But also, it's discouraging because it's not just Moses. As much as you and I can be discouraged by reading this story, the truth is we're reflected in this story so often. We have our own stubbornness, right? We have our own stiff-necked, hard hearts. Uh, we have our own ways where we still struggle. Uh, and and if, you, if you think you don't, you probably just aren't paying close enough attention. Actually, it's a, it's a really important idea. Listen, we're going to talk about this in our community group this afternoon. This is a really important idea, that actually spiritual growth, the the baseline for spiritual growth is that your eyes become more open and your heart becomes more aware to how sinful you really are. Spiritual growth, hopefully you are making progress and you're actually sinning less, but at the same time spiritual growth is based in the idea that you're not convinced that you're sinless. You're becoming more and more aware that, hey, the main problem in this story is me. And I've got to continually take my heart back before God and ask Him. And it's depressing, listen, but it's authentic. This is not a custom-made story by Hollywood or a novelist. I wish we could resolve the tension more than we do. But instead, we throw ourselves on the mercy and grace of God, which is what everyone has to do. It it can be discouraging. My wife and I have this discussion all the time. Have you ever noticed there are some movies that just come on TV often? Right? One of those movies, and I don't watch much TV the way that I used to, but back in the day, before we were all streaming whatever we wanted to watch, remember back when you just had to watch what they were showing? Right? One of those movies was called The Perfect Storm. Anybody ever seen The Perfect Storm? I love that movie. My wife hates that movie. Anybody want to guess why? It's depressing. They all die at the end. But actually, the story of the Andrea Gale is a fascinating story, and the movie's based on facts. I didn't say it was faithful. It's probably not faithful to all the, the details of the facts, but it's a true story. It act, this is how the story ends. And it stinks. It's depressing, but it's also authentic. And so often, that's not just the stories of what we read in Scripture, that's your story and that's my story. Now the beautiful thing about it is, even though Moses didn't get to go into the Promised Land, he was still loved by his Father. He's still fully accepted. God didn't cast him aside. He just got, he had to miss out on some things. And so, you and I get to know that we have the opportunity to be fully loved and accepted by God. I want you to let that wash over you for just a second. That despite of our rebelliousness and our stubbornness, we get to be fully loved and accepted by God. But because he's a loving father, there may be things that we miss out on. And I don't want to miss out on anything that God has for me. I don't know about you, but that's how I feel. Like I want to lean into my faith. I want to grow. I want to learn to trust God more and move away from my... Stubbornness, right? And also, what's interesting in this story, I think, is how often this theme of the Israelites just being thirsty comes up. This is the third time that we've seen, the third major point that we've seen in this story, because that's the setting for the story. We didn't read that part, but if you go back and read all of Numbers 20, like read the first five verses, because we started reading in verse six, if you go back and read the first five verses, you find that that's what happened. They were just thirsty. Well, I get grumpy when I'm thirsty too, don't you? Right? I know there's such a thing as being hangry. Is there, a, is there a thirsty version of it, maybe? I'm not making excuses, but this is where they found themselves. They were just thirsty. This theme of water and thirst you see a couple times, because if you're, if you're thinking that this story sounds familiar, it does, right? In the theme of water and thirst, you have three total instances today. Today's the third one right? In Exodus 15, you have Mara, which is where they, this is what they named the place where they were, where bitter water was made sweet when God directed Moses to throw a log in the water. Now, that's not a great way to turn bitter water drinkable, is it? I don't know what the science is like behind that, but I think there isn't any. It's just faith. Throw a log in the water, and suddenly the bitter water was made sweet. Hey, you know what? We should name this place because this is a significant thing. Yes, we'll call it Mara. Two chapters later in Exodus 17, a place called Masa or Meribah, but this was Meribah in Sinai. So you see, uh, there's there's kind of these three movements, right? They were in Sinai, and then they move... uh, And then they move again, right? This is Meribah in Sinai. Moses was directed to strike the rock for water. This is where we can get a little confused by the story. Wait a second. So, in this story he strikes the rock and he gets in trouble, but I thought he did strike a rock. Right, because before when they were in Sinai, God instructed him to strike the rock and water came out of it. Again, I'm no scientist. I think that's a miracle, we should name this place. We're going to call it Meribah, right? And then we find ourselves in Numbers 20 in a very similar story. This is Meribah in Zen because as I said they were in Sinai. Then this, there's these three wildernesses that they find themselves in. Sinai, and then Paran, and now Zen, right? This is where they are. This Meribah in Zen where they are speaking to the, it, Moses is directed to speak to the rock. Those are the verses that we read. God said, get the staff. By the way... Just as a little rewind, uh, I told you last week about number sixteen in the story of Korah, this rebellion where Korah leads this rebellion against Moses and against Aaron, and ultimately against God. We're going to get our own leaders, and we're going to go back to Egypt. You're you're not in control of us. You're not in charge of us. You're not our leader anymore. And God deals with it. In fact, He deals with it with it in a pretty dramatic way. The ground opens, and all the rebels fall in, and then the ground closes. I didn't write it. I'm just telling you what's in there. And so, as the Israelites, at the beginning of Numbers 20, as they're complaining about being thirsty, you actually find them saying, Why couldn't we have just perished like our brothers and our sisters? And they mean the people who fell in the earth when it opened, right? And God's instruction is to, to Moses is to go get that staff. It's, it's, a, it's a unification of he and Aaron and your leadership. Go with the staff, the staff that budded, as a reminder that you are my leaders for these people. Take the staff with you and speak to the rock. Why did God tell him something different? I don't know. But I know he did. It's pretty clear that he did. So at this point, the wheels have fully come off you think about all that Moses went through, trying to be faithful to God's truth, trying to be faithful to God's plan, trying to be faithful to God's purpose, trying to faithfully lead these rebellious people to have paid the price that he had paid, and now to know that he's not going to get to enter the promised land. That's discouraging. That's depressing. It's authentic, but it's depressing How does the leader of the Exodus not get to finish the story? Humanly speaking, the hero of the story doesn't get to finish the story. After doing so well at keeping everyone aligned with God's vision, how did he manage to miss it? How did he manage to miss it himself? I think the answers are subtle. I think theologians have been trying, well, as long as I can remember, as long as I've been alive... Theologians have taken different stabs at the answer to this? The answers are subtle, I think, because I don't think there is one clear answer. In fact, I think there are at least three things, which is what we're going to talk about this morning. There are a couple things that he does, three things specifically that I see in the story that he did that are subtle, but they're undeniable. How did Moses miss God's best for him? Well, the first one you see in your notes there, Moses missed God's best for him because of a hasty and unnecessary speech. Go back back with me to verse 10. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Well, that's not a great way to start a speech, is it? Here's the interesting thing. God didn't tell him to say that to them. He's ad-libbing at this point, right? Have you ever done anything impetuous? Nobody? Good. That's awesome. You should come up here and preach because I've done quite a few things that are impetuous. I've had to learn over time that the more that I can, and can kind of keep my powder dry, prep, push things down and wait and be patient, better of a chance that I'm not going to make a bonehead decision. How do we make such bonehead decisions? Often it's through impetuousness. Haste, a hasty and unnecessary speech. And by the way, could I just say this to you? In a society and in a culture that specializes in cancel culture, that's actually pretty dangerous. I think many of us who are older are glad that our worst moments weren't captured on social media, right? (laughs) Ooh, boy. I'm glad that it wasn't even around in the 90s. Come on impetuousness haste doing things that are unnecessary impulsive decisions are often poor decisions that's in your notes impulsive decisions are often poor decisions proverbs 14:29 i love the proverbs these little these little Two line hits that we can memorize that will change the way we think, change the way that we make decisions, change the way that we live. Proverbs 14, 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper, what do the last two words say? Yeah. When we have a hasty temper, we exalt folly. What does that mean? Well, it means exactly what it sounds like. If you and I are impulse driven, then in essence, we are believing that foolishness is fun. Foolishness is desirable. We should celebrate it. That's what exalting folly is. That doesn't sound like a very good life choice, does it? And yet, in the moment, you and I both can be tempted into making that kind of decision. Being impulse-driven is when we think that foolishness is fun or desirable. And I would just say this to you quickly and we're gonna move on. Listen, this is not just describing two types of people. This is also describing two types of reactions to what's going on around us. And so the question is not necessarily what kind of person are you, but what's your next reaction gonna look like? You can change right now. You can decide to plot a new course. Especially if you're a believer with the Spirit's help. You can choose to make better choices. In fact, God wants us. We're going to talk more about this in just a second. God wants us to make choices that honor Him. So He has this kind of hasty speech. The second observation, interestingly, Moses misses God's best for him because he has a prideful posture. He has this kind of hasty and impetuous speech, but he also has a prideful posture. It's interesting. Back in verse 10, Moses and Aaron gathers the assembly together before the rock. He says to them, hear now you rebels. What does it say? Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Here's a hint. When Moses said we, it wasn't talking about him and God. He was talking about him and Aaron. Shall we do this? Okay. Humanly speaking, Moses was God's agent. But Moses wasn't the linchpin. I mean, you don't have to scratch too far below the surface in this story to understand this dynamic. You don't get to take credit for things that God is doing, even if you're the human agent. Ultimately, you have to give credit to God. You have to give glory to God. You have to give honor to God. And also, listen, isn't it a little silly to say that you're going to bring water out of a rock as if you're doing it on your own? I was reminded uh, of my grandfather, who's long since passed and gone on to be with the Lord. Growing up, he lit, when, when I was growing up, he lived on a farm um, down south where we're from, and uh, he had this old GMC pickup, right? And it was one of these, uh, it was a three-speed on the column. Uh, I still remember it, right? It's this old, nasty, brown, stepside, ugly truck, which I thought was wonderful, And I can remember driving around the farm with him, sitting on his lap, right? Totally not legal, okay? Do not try this at home. Uh, Actual mileage may vary. I don't think I ran into anything. I don't remember running into anything, but I remember sitting on his lap as a little guy, because the steering wheel was so big, I can remember doing this, right? Now, the steering wheel actually wasn't that big, but for me it was. I was driving. And we would come in, and I would tell my mom, I was driving. I just drove, and I thought she was going to lose her mind, which often happened when I was with my grandfather. (laughs) That That was my mom's reaction. They were just kind of like this. They're up there together now, and they get along. I don't know how. It's a miracle, I guess, right? But that friction, right? Why? Because she knew I probably shouldn't be driving. Well, what's the point of the story? There you go. I wasn't actually driving. I just thought I was. You know how I know I wasn't driving? Because I had not yet learned to drive a stick shift. (laughs) He was doing all the work with his feet, and if I didn't know any better, I'm guessing he was also, he had one hand on the wheel, right, also? How silly is it for a kid that's not even old enough to go to school To try to take credit for actually driving the vehicle. How much more silly is it for you and I to want to take credit for things that really belong to God? Shall I do this? Shall I do that? This is a prideful posture. Listen, the only truly necessary ingredient to God's plan is God Himself, He's the only truly necessary ingredient. Now again, doesn't mean that He doesn't love us. But whether He chooses to fulfill His plan through us or through our own rebellion, we can move away from that. He can still love us, and He can pivot and fulfill His plan through someone else. Romans 12, 2-3, verses that, especially Romans 12, 2, you're probably familiar with, do not be conformed to this world. And by the way, let me just remind you, Paul didn't write chapters and verses, he just wrote a letter. So he didn't understand that chapter or verse two was totally separate from verse three. Because in his mind that was outworked. He was just writing a letter. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing, say these next few words with me, you may discern what is the will of God. You ever want to know what God's will is? I do all the time we seek god's face which we should we want to know what god what's the future look like what's the future for me what's the future for my family what's the future for my job right these are not bad questions to ask god what do you have for us that by testing you may discern what is the will of god what is good and acceptable and perfect what's the next word little little three letter word For, in the Greek, it's a connector. See, there's also no punctuation in the original. There's no period there. And that little word for means that verse three is directly connected to verse two. He's just continuing a thought. We don't think of it that way, but that's what he's doing. For, by the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you, you want to know what the will of God is? Here's part of it. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober, which means sound, or right, or proper judgment. Listen, I can sit in my grandfather's lap and have fun, and he may actually be letting me steer a little bit. And there's nothing wrong with that. I just don't need to go around thinking that I'm actually driving the truck, That's where the wheels come off, maybe literally, right? That's where we get in trouble. So, as we cooperate with God, as we cooperate with God, along the way, we need to remember that ultimately we're we're working with Him. He's not working with us. We cooperate with Him. This is His plan. This is His story. What was the third mistake that Moses made? Well, We had kind of this hasty speech, this unnecessary speech, prideful posture, and then he took a rebellious action. He took a rebellious action. This is what most of us point to, and we're not wrong to point to this, right? Where did the wheels come off for Moses? Why does he not get to go into the Promised Land? I mean, ultimately it was about rebellion. We were looking at verse 10, now look at verse 11, after he's given this speech. Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Verse 11 says, Moses lifted up his hand, and he did what? Struck the rock with his staff twice, which is not what he was told to do. He was supposed to take the staff, gather the people, and speak to the rock. Instead, Moses and Aaron both take the staff, speak to the people, and hit the rock. Subtle, but it mattered. It mattered. You got to zoom out and see the bigger picture for the next 800 years the nation of Israel living in the promised land would struggle with disobedience they enter the promised land somewhere in the neighborhood of 1400 BC and this is going to be the story a story of rebellion and stubbornness of idolatry which is why you and I can identify with them because the wheels come off for us too In 722, the nation fell. They went into captivity. They were all, most of them, hauled off. Towards the end, between the years of 760, remember in B.C., we're counting down, right? So between the years 760 and 722, the prophet Hosea was prophesying to the northern kingdom, which was all that was left. And in Hosea 6, this is God talking to Israel through Hosea, he says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? He's exasperated. Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Doesn't that sound poetic? It's not a compliment. <laughs> Listen to it, right? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Your love doesn't last, it's fleeting, it's temporary. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I've sent the prophets to reprimand. I've sent the prophets to discipline. Why? Listen, look at me. God doesn't discipline us because he doesn't love us. He disciplines us because he does love us. This is what loving parents do. I've hewn them by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love, continuous love, faithful love, and not just sacrifice. It's not just the singing and the worship that we do. that's important, but it's not just that. I desire the whole person. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Please hear this. God's desire in 1400 B.C. and in 722 B.C. and today is for our worship to flow out of aligned and surrendered hearts. See, God wants our worship. We're glad you're here. We need to worship together, right? We need corporate worship. But God actually wants our entire lives to reflect Him, And to be worshipful of him and to be surrendered to him. He wants us to be obedient. Please hear this. Because he wants us to know and to understand how much he loves us in spite of our rebellion. See, the beginning of the gospel is that there's something wrong with you. But that's not the end of the gospel, that's just the beginning. When you understand that you don't have any hope on your own, if you're only putting your hope in yourself, when you understand that, then you're actually positioned to see where real hope comes from. Real hope isn't found deep down inside somewhere. Real hope is found when we put our faith in someone much more faithful than we are and much more loving than we are. And when we see ourselves in light of who we really are before God, as far more sinful than we ever could have understood, just listen, but also far more loved than we ever could have fathomed. When we see both of those things, we're actually positioned to obey from the heart. God doesn't just want our actions and our words. He wants our hearts. And He wants our hearts to be pointed towards Him so that He can continue to call us to Himself. And this is the Gospel message, and if you've never responded to it, I would love to talk to you at the end of this service, or you can text. There's a number right on your takeaway card, and if you don't know what that is, ask somebody or come talk to me, right, when this is over. This is a really important idea, that you and I would put our faith not in ourselves anymore, but in the Gospel and in this story that Jesus came to die on the cross so that you and I could be forgiven, And so that we could respond, not just some kind of behavior modification, but that we could respond in hearts of love, and that we could bring our hearts into alignment. This is what God wants. Moses disobeyed. He struck the the rock instead of speaking to the rock. He spoke harshly and rashly. He let his anger get the best of him. The speech wasn't necessary. And he dishonored God by saying, shall we bring water out of this rock? And ultimately, he would be allowed to look at the Promised Land. He would see it from Mount Pisgah in the Transjordan that he wouldn't get to go in. Here's the question. What's at stake with our impulsive choices? What's the price tag of our pride? What could our disobedience cost us. If you genuinely have faith in God, you're forgiven. And nothing's going to ever take that from you. You can't, you can't dial back that clock. But we can still experience the ramifications. For some of us, it's that initial step of putting faith in who Jesus is. Putting, listen, leaning all our weight into the story of the gospel. For some of us, it's whatever that next step is that we've been thinking about, that we've been praying about this week or this month. God loves you. And he does have a wonderful plan. And he wants your life to be included in that. But ultimately, he wants your heart. He wants your heart. And could I just say this? He's the only person you've ever met that's 100% truly trustworthy for you to give your heart to. You can absolutely trust that he's going to treat you well. Moses' rebellion was grounded ultimately in a lack of faith. He didn't really believe God's words mattered that much. And I mean the literal words that God told him, what God told him to do. So I didn't obey. Ultimately, it was a lack of faith. Psalm 119.66, David's prayer to God is teach me good judgment and knowledge. Boy, if Moses could have prayed that, right? Teach me good judgment and knowledge for I believe in your commandments. I don't know what your stories look like up until this, but I know God offers grace. I know that God offers forgiveness. I know that as much as He wants you to give Him your heart, He actually has already won it, if you'll pay attention to what's going on around you and the message of the gospel. He's totally, totally trustworthy. And so our our prayer as we read this psalm and as we think about the context of Moses' story Our prayer to God can be, give me faith in your word. Give me faith in your commandments. Help me to take you at your word and to believe that you are who you say you are, that you love me the way that you say you love me, and that you want what's best for me until I can believe and trust and obey your commands. Give me faith in your word and give me the good judgment that results from faith in your word. Let's pray. God, we... We don't deserve your grace and your mercy, and yet you give it to us so freely. Uh, we thank you for the story of Moses because it is cautionary. It reminds us that uh, we can miss out on some of the blessings of your plan in our lives, some of the things you want us to experience, some of, some of your best that you have for us. And yet, you still love Moses. You didn't turn your back on him, even though there were ramifications for him in his practical and in his life here on this earth. Ultimately, he's a hero of the faith. And so we thank you that when we put our faith in Jesus, it's not about performance. You're not going to punish us into oblivion or, or remove our salvation or anything like that. We can rest when we know that we're forgiven in you. And yet, as we're your followers, as we're your children, you call us to something higher and better. You call us to obedience. You call us to alignment. You call us to have aligned hearts, not just aligned mouths and aligned actions. So God, woo us again in ways that only your spirit can. Open our eyes. Open our eyes to see how beautiful your gospel is. This message that we've been redeemed, that we've been forgiven that you love us and your way for us truly is best. Help us to see that. Give us the courage to embrace that and give us the courage to act out of that and to make decisions out of that and to speak out of that. Thank you for Jesus and for the cross and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.